When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Does picking an outfit have you running a little too fashionably late? We get it. Great taste takes time. That's why Drizzly, the number one app for alcohol delivery, has your back with the largest selection of beer, wine, and spirits, delivered in under 60 minutes. Convenience never goes out of style. So if you need to spend some extra time in the mirror instead of at the store, download the Drizzly app or go to drizzly.com. That's D-R-I-Z-L-Y dot com today. Hello and welcome to the Rocks Back Pages podcast. I'm sat here with Mr. Mark Pringle. Hi, Bonnie. And Mr. Jasper Murison Bowie. Hello, Barney. Hello, comrades. <laughs> Hello. <laughs> um, yes. Good day. Uh, good day. <laughs> Today we'll be talking about American folk country troubadour John Prine and featured writer Mike Barnes. But we're going to start with the suave gentleman known variously as Byron Ferrari... Brain Fury, Biryani <laughs> Ferret, and Brian Barnett, but who today we'll call by his actual name, which is Mark. <laughs> I've forgotten it now. Brian, Fe- <laughs> Br- Brian Ferry. What's brilliant about all those names, most of which are coined by the enemy, is they got under his skin. He mm. really didn't like it. You mm. know, this is a man who doesn't have much sense of humour towards himself. I'll certainly be referring to him as Byron Ferrari <laughs> throughout the yeah. podcast. So the reason we're talking about Brian Ferry, the lead singer of Roxy Music, is because they've just, I don't know who they are, but someone's just released a live album of a show he did in December 1974 at the Royal Albert Hall. Some blokes at the back of a white van just released. <laughs> you know, I, I think it is a legitimate record company. So it's the first solo shows he did. I mean, yeah. Roxy Music was still going, but he had released, at that point, two albums of cover songs. Two fairly ghastly albums of cover songs. Well, let, we'll talk about that, shall we? So, <laughs> so these foolish things, with its title track, Curtis of Cold Porter, had come out in 73, and then Another Time, Another Place came out in 74. And, you know, this was a very different Brian Ferry to, let's say, the, the guy that we saw on Top of the Pop singing Virginia Plain. Very, very, very different Brian Ferry. And, I mean, he did the second worst version of Jealous Guy, 
the first, the worst being the original version by <laughs> John Lennon, and by far the best being Donny oh, Hathaway. Oh yeah, that, that's a great. You version. know, but but so so this, yes, the second worst version of Jealous Guy. Well, no, I was a huge Roxy fan. So I, I, yeah, me too. You were a Roxy fan as well, and so I did actually. I bought these foolish things because it was Brian Ferry, and you know. It was looking back, it instantly. Well, looking back, all these years, did I really want to hear Brian singing, you know, Dylan's Hard Brains Gone it's for my or party. Smoke Gets in My Eyes? It's my party. It's my party. I mean, <laughs> there were a lot of cover albums being done in those yeah, days. Yes, Bowie done pinups. Everyone around, had around to do a cover same time. Well, I think, but was Bowie's pinups the first? It predated these first yeah, things, yeah. I um, think. And I think. Bowie 73, actually. Yeah, it sort of set the tone for it. I mean, Roxy Music were just such an exciting act mm-hmm. when they first emerged. I think their second album, which is named Entirely Escapes For Me, For Your Pleasure, <laughs> is just a great, great record. I roaded for Roxy Music at the Slough Community Centre in 19, early 1972. <laughs> it's, it's like Alf Hitler, my passing <laughs> yeah, his downfall, exactly. isn't it, really, um, with Mark? Because my, my art teacher, John Rag, <laughs> was, was there roadie. In fact, in the first album, it says, Transport by Rag. So he dragged me along, and I realised I couldn't pick up a Fender Twin Reverb amplifier. I was too spindly to do that. <laughs> <laughs> oh, but, 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 so but, no, I mean, my school, Holland Park School, Andy McKay taught woodwind instruments in the music department. Eno came to demonstrate the VCS3 synthesizer and got chased out by skinheads shouting, you poof. I see. Those, <laughs> were the days. Those were the days. So Roxy Music, almost like a house band for my school. You right. know, they, 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 they sort of belong to us in a curious kind of way. And Virginia Plain was such a startlingly brilliant record. But they were so futuristic, weren't yeah, they? Yeah. And, they were, and so when Brian did these covers albums, it seemed awfully sort of retrogressive. Well, it pointed it? towards, it pointed out what he fundamentally was, which was fairly reactionary. Yes, he had that sort of art school featureism. He was mm-hmm. at art school himself. But in the end, I mean, Rock's music themselves became more and more reactionary band. They became the sort of more and more middle of the road. They, they wanted they, hits in America and got them. Yeah, but also I think ultimately that was his taste emerging. Yes. He was He was a smooth operator, he was a, wasn't he? Yeah. Probably too smooth. And actually the first of the pieces to do with this is actually a review of one of those shows. I think he actually did three shows in mm-hmm. the Hall. And this is the the, the wonderfully catty Philip Norman. Oh, he's great. Re- <laughs> reviewing for the Times. And so he sets the scene. The better boxes were filled with the fashionable elite of rock music, vigorously semaphoring their prestige and their exclusiveness. <laughs> Wonderful. And then he writes of Brian, it engages our attention that a man wearing evening dress and hairdressing should sway and bend his knees in the execution of a rock song. It surprises us that a voice little stronger than that of a guard's subaltern on amateur night should be exercised upon the songs of Brian Wilson, Chris Christopherson and Stevie Wonder. <laughs> oh, ooh. Ooh, ouch, ouch. I think it occurs to me that Philip Norman is the, the British John Mendelssohn in a way, because I barely read a positive review. and He wrote for the Times in the, sort of the yes. late 70s. Yes. I've barely read a single positive review of his. It's very elegant to stay. Yeah. Isn't it? One, oh. I remember I read that one for his yeah. review of Barry White yeah. on one of the podcasts yeah. a few weeks back. That was absolutely hilarious. Yeah. Except for Lloyd Bradley looking slightly glaring over the top of the microphone at me while I read it. <laughs> Moving um, on. Well, so the second piece is an interview that Max Bell of The Enemy actually did with The Enemy, you mentioned them yeah. earlier, did just before these shows, and he's kind of asking Brian 
about them. And Brian says, I haven't been there yet. I'm not going until they push me on stage. I think he clearly was quite nervous about this. Mm -hmm. But the title of the piece really sums up the enemy's attitude to Byron Ferrari. Um, (laughs) It's a picture of him wearing a kind of tweed jacket and a tie. And it's titled, Tired of That Same Old Anorak? Achieve the Country Life Look in a Comfy Tweed Blazer by Ferrari of South Kensington. <laughs> I mean, they had really decided yeah. that he, he was well, preposterous. Well, I think it's partly because he seemed to take himself so seriously. Yeah. And also he was a really humorless interviewee. And I've read a lot of interviews in sure. my jobbers. And this is a man... Well, he always strikes me as being a bit depressive. Do you know what? I think you're right. I think he is. I mean, I've only interviewed him once and I found him both quite depressed Mm -hmm. and quite (laughs) humourless. Good combination. (laughs) But but, 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 which is bizarre when you think about the, the sort of the wit and space age genius of the lyrics yeah, on, yeah. Those, on those first I mean, Roxy Roxy music Roxy are neither, neither depressing nor humorless. Yeah. I think Brian, a bit like Mick Jagger, Brian became very enamoured of, shall we say, the English upper classes yeah. and indeed married into them. And and, and, and he, for, for what was he? I mean, he, was, he grew up in Newcastle. That's right. You know, and I don't know why all this seemed so impressive to him. Well, but I, it just did. Well, it just it does to there are quite a few people from, let's say, essentially kind of working class or lower middle class backgrounds who are impressed by the. the Jagger's never really got over it. Uh, well, Jagger's almost part of it in the first place. You know, I mean, I mean yeah, because Jagger not, not exactly middle class. Yes, uh, uh, so I, don't, I don't think it's sort of limited to. Uh, just, no, I, I mean, you know, it's not a sort of. Looking upwards necessarily from working class no, or lower class individuals, I, I, I think it's... I, I think very really bought into it. People uh, do and, buy and into it. And it also ended up either skewing or a bit either creation of or creating his own fairly politically reactionary attitudes, exemplified by his hunt, his, his mm. hunting son, for example. Yeah. you know, there's something that's, I think was always already there, and that his wealth and his position allowed him to marry into kind of become part of that sort yeah. of thing, yeah. which I find pretty nauseating myself. M- Max notes that... So the Roxy album, Country Life, the fourth Roxy album, yeah. had come out earlier that year. And Max says, claims that Country Life was named after an obscure reference to metaphysical poet John Donne are incorrect. <laughs> um, in fact, the riddle is solved by a brief look around Brian's front room where three or four copies of the famous <laughs> magazine of that name are scattered. Yep. So, I mean, yep. there we are. You know, this is this is two years after Virginia Plain and Remake Remodel, and he's reading country life. Wasn't it, one of your good friends, his brother-in-law for a stretch? One of our writers, Edward Helmel, is, or was his brother-in-law. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, I, mean, I wonder um, if it's somewhat to do with if someone becomes famous and you then, as a celebrity, you don't, you feel like other people aren't treating you as they might have before you're a celebrity and then there's this lure of aristocracy because that's mm. sort of what they sort of give up on the idea of being a normal person to begin with, if you're an aristocrat. And so it's yeah. sort of like an escapism in a way to try and join in with that other world because the real world is closed off to you by your celebrity I, status. I, I think yeah. that's a very good point. And yeah. It's also a two-way street because certainly some of the aristocracy were wildly attracted by those who emerged from rock and roll. Certainly in the 70s, there was this kind of fairly 
Well, probably particularly in the 60s, actually, yeah. Yeah, with yeah. the whole... The Stones became very... Well, we mentioned Jagger yeah. became very much a sort of magnet for the more debauched elements of the English Absolutely. aristocracy. Absolutely. You know, the Gettys and the Guinnesses and all of that. Yeah. My sweet Lady Jane When I see you again the last of the pieces, funny enough, is, is Brian back at the Albert Hall in late 2002. Lisa Verico reviewing the suave crooner, as she calls him, aged 57 now, playing to, quote-unquote, an audience mainly of women with 1980s hair and smart shoes and men with neatly trimmed beards. <laughs> um, the vibe was a touch too cocktail hour at a posh hotel, but then that's always been Ferry's forte. Mm. I mean, so, you know, to, to, to his, in his favour as a solo artist, he's provided steady employment with some very good musicians. Chris Spedding, for a long time, has been Ferry's guitar player of choice and so mm. on and so forth, you know. And, you know, he's obviously kind of got good taste in a certain sort of limited kind of way. Yeah, possibly sort of too good yeah. taste. I mean, I think many of his solo albums are, they're sort of tasteful to a point of perfection, a sort of sterile perfectionism, yep. Yep. you know. I mean, it's just it's such a shame because those first two Roxy albums were so electrifying. And playful. And playful. Yes. And exciting. And you've got extraordinary songs like In Every Dream Home a Heartache, which is just mm. a magnificent exactly. piece of work. Exactly. You know. And then from there, via Roxy and Avalon and those sorts of... It just becomes of, a, bit too, a bit bland, a doesn't bit, it? A bit. Yeah. Very, very bland yeah. indeed. Yeah. And Maybe just, it's just that I think when Eno left, yeah. that changed everything. And the way in which Eno left is it's in itself interesting. Very hated the fact that this lunatic on one side of the stage with vast amounts of makeup and and, and giant like ostrich feathers, feathers on his back was, yeah. was, was drawing the attention yeah. of the audiences. He, yeah, he, I think he, that's he, right. He resented that, that. That. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. So free on Rock's Back Pages this week are three pieces by the excellent Mike Barnes, who's long been a writer on The Wire. Mike um, is just publishing this month, I believe it's 600 pages long. It is the <laughs> d- d- definitive account of UK progressive rock in the 70s. It's called A New Day Yesterday. It'd be a bit weird to write a short book about prog. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Good like, yeah, a sort of three-minute version of, <laughs> of prog. No, you're absolutely right. It has to be very long. Really, it should <laughs> be published as longer. a triple album, yeah. right? It, it is the... It's it's sort of tales, tales from the tropographic oceans in book four. So if this is a 100-page book, does it mean that the short book has to happen? <laughs> <laughs> a sort of short history of punk rock exactly. has to follow on its heels. I mean, I, I haven't read it as yet, but I know it'll be very good yeah. because Mike is is really good He's on all I mean, his B-Fart book was, was absolutely terrific. Mm-hmm. And in fact, one of the three pieces is, a, is an excerpt from that B-Fart book which came out in 2000, and it's an account of the making of Trout Mask Replica. But we thought that the, the two most fitting of the pieces of his we have on RBP 
a wire piece on what was for him the epiphany of hearing Pink Floyd's Oma Gummer <laughs> at, the, at the age of, I think, 12 years, <laughs> 12 years old. And he clearly never recovered from this. One of his mates had an older brother who was the local head, seven years older than us, tall, skinny, shoulder-length corkscrew hair, billowing loon pants. And they went round to Ants, like, pad in Norwich, I think, is where we are. <laughs> and first record that Ant put on was Amagama. And he's just very funny, Mike, about, yeah. about hearing Amagama, which I, I, he calls sort of the apogee of psychedelia and or self-indulgence run amok. Mm-hmm. We were talking quite extensively about this in the office yesterday because Paul, our colleague, is, shall we say, something of a fan of Pink Floyd. A little bit. He's got all of their albums and some of them multiple times. <laughs> <laughs> and I just remember that, that those Amagama Atomheart Mother were perfect platforms to stick three roosters together for the elaborate schoolboy joint circa 1970 <laughs> 71. You know. And I saw them in the park in, I think it was 69, supported by Kevin Ayers and the whole world. And it was quite possibly the most boring show I've seen in my entire life, with kind of the fairly loathsome figure of Roger Waters up front, screwing his face up at the angst of his lyrics, barking, careful with that axe, Eugene. Right, which, of course, is a track on, on Amagama. <laughs> and, um, with, with magnificent bathos, Mike writes, after this, this epiphany, the Amagama epiphany, <laughs> he writes, cycling off in the dark to meet friends at the Blowfield Village bonfire party, a chunk had broken off Pink Floyd's universe and it was whirling like a nebula inside my adolescent head. Everything looked different <laughs> now and life would never be the same again. It's interesting, Pink Floyd does seem to inspire that kind of devotion and mm-hmm. where people mm. just get sort of like totally transported mm. by whatever it is that they're doing. And, yeah, I mean, he says life will never be the same again. I mean, that's mm. a pretty pretty striking endorsement of a, of a band's music that if listeners haven't noticed that there is some scorn being poured on <laughs> Pink Floyd from the host Not of this podcast. No, no, I mean, you know, the, 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 first of all, you know, I'm just about too young to remember 1967, you know, um, being the oldest person in the room. By in the building, probably. In the building, probably. But they were really important in certain respects, is that they were a liberating influence on a lot of bands that followed them. They were part of, even though they were a curious band, basically the original Sid Barrett version was split into two. There was the two acid heads and the two beer drinkers, Sid very much being one of the acid heads. And, you know, they, they were a very middle-class bunch, you know, architecture students and so on and so forth. They weren't good musicians. This is this, this to separate them off from prog. Prod, yeah, and Mike kind of alludes to yeah. that. I think that's that's quite interesting. They're, they're, they were pretty primitive yeah. players. Dave Gilmore coming in initially as alongside and then as a replacement to Sid Barrett yeah. upped the game in terms of just technical ability to play. Mm-hmm. And in a way, it's kind of quite nice that they weren't. They were imaginative enough to try and do interesting things without much to do them with. So they got involved in all kinds of quite interesting what we'd regard as art rock experiments with loop tapes and things like like that. So they they were a pioneering band. We all love Krautrock, for example, and I think there's no doubt that Void were big influences on those those German groups. Interestingly, Mike Barnes in this piece makes it clear that Amagama didn't 
lead to a sort of lifelong devotion to Pink okay. Floyd. Mm-hmm. Interesting. I mean, he says it's their most exploratory album precisely because they were prepared to take risks and overreach themselves yeah. at that point. And he actually says, you know, once they released the plodding dark side of the moon, mm-hmm. sorry, Paul, which, <laughs> which they're still proud of, my interest in them began to wane. Yeah. Okay, which sort enough. of leads us to the, to the second Mike Barnes piece, which is an interview with Peter Hamill, also from The Wire in 2007, mm-hmm. where... Inevitably, he talks about Hamill's band, Van de Graaff Generator, who were very different from Pink Floyd and in some ways much more influential on punk and post-punk, as proggy as they were. Yeah. They they were, I mean, I think much more interesting yeah, than Pink Floyd. Uh, uh, John Lydon was a fan of Van de Graaff Generation. I never liked them. I found them too angular and difficult, actually, in a curious kind of way. But I can absolutely see, we were talking last week about yeah. Andy Gill and the Gang of Four. Yeah. But some of that angularity that the post-punk bands had actually has more to do with Van de Graaff Generator than, than kind of anything else. In, in, in well, and particularly Hamill's solo album Nadia's Big yes, Chance, yes. which came out in 75 mm-hmm. and was, I mean, there's no, it's no secret, it was a huge influence not only on John Lydon, but on Marky Smith. Yes. So Hamill was a bit of a hero to some of these emergent punks. Mm. There's just a couple of, I mean, I think he's a really interesting guy. I, I, I saw him perform once, as I never saw Van de Graaff, but right. I saw him do a show the Bloomsbury Theatre, and it was actually just really, really yeah. compelling. He he was a really compelling mm-hmm. writer and performer. And he so Hamill says in this piece, I think that historical perspective has collapsed everything down into a prog era. Mm-hmm. But what is often forgotten is that it was an extraordinary period of about 10 to 15 years from 1964 where something different was happening every year. Yeah. But he says a little bit later, he says, I'm actually quite happy to be rolled into prog mm-hmm. because it meant covers of magazines and all that sort mm-hmm. of thing. But I think there was this element of aggression, of chaos that was there in our music yes. uh, that wasn't just generally there in what came to be known yeah, as prog rock. Uh, sure. I think that's absolutely spot on, that Van de Graaff Generator had none of the pompous grandiosity of bands like Emerson, Lake and Palmer in particular. Or R- the Rick Waitman Rick era, Waitman, yes. Rick Waitman yeah. era, yes, very much. I mean, you know, my brother, was when I was a kid, he was buying albums by The Nice, who Keith Emerson was part of, and, and yes, and... Yes, his first three albums to me still sound absolutely fabulous, mm. but they're almost closer to West Coast rock than what we'd now regard mm. as prog. Yes. There's the use of harmonies, the song structures and songwriting, which is, is really rather fabulous. Wakeman joined. I saw them supporting Iron Butterfly, of all people, at the Albert Hall in 71, and they were fantastic. Right. They were... Re- yeah. Tony Kay on organ, Steve Howard just joined on guitar. Yeah. Great players and, in their way. But when Wakeman joined, now Wakeman's got a great track record. He played some of the, on some of the best Bowie albums, pre-Ziggy Bowie albums. He was in Straubs, all kinds of interesting mm. stuff. But somehow he was liberated by Yes to produce the worst excesses of prog. Yes. And, Emerson, and as for his solo album, oh, the Six the Wives yeah. of Henry He's actually VIII. a very jovial figure. He occasionally turns he, up on TV programmes now. And he's, yes, he's going to be doing a podcast next week. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, Joke, but, 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 you know, they're, they're themselves and Emerson, they can part They're all the kind of the, the third-rate, second-division prog bands, of which there were huge numbers. Playing the student circuit round, mm. round England in the mid-'70s, 
Mm. What I think that Van der Graaff generator sort of nicely demonstrates is that the straight line or straight sort of opposite that mm-hmm. people like to yeah. draw between prog and punk yeah. is a construction in a yes. lot of ways. Yeah. We, we actually, I think you were talking about that with, with Dorian Linsky the other week, where it's like these these sort of neat narratives that get yes. superimposed yeah. yes. on eras of music. Yeah. So it doesn't really work like no, that. that. I There's think always very... connecting bands and yeah. connecting movements and also things that overlap. Also, we forget how short the punk period really was. I mean, yes, it went on afterwards with the Oi bands and the Sham 69s and Angelic Upstarts as well. But, you know, the pure punk period was basically 18 months and rapidly punk bands were saying, this this isn't good enough. We yeah. can't keep playing three chords and mm. shouting. Mm. So you've got bands like The Slits integrating sure. reggae and all kinds of stuff. And Wire, <clears> who <throat> we were talking about, and I think with Dorian Linsky we were talking about. I'll Wire. bet Wire listened to Van der Graaff. Absolutely. Actually, you know. Absolutely. I mean, all this is exemplified by this very funny quote from from Howell in this piece where he talks about Marky Smith of The Fool. Um, He says, I last saw Mark in the Netherlands some years ago. Several beers were consumed over (laughs) a couple of days, but not a lot of sense was made. Mm -hmm. But he says, I think we acknowledge each other as different sides of the same coin. Resistance to orthodoxy, I suppose. So, great piece about an interesting guy. And Mike's book is, to give it its full title, is called A New Day Yesterday. You progressive rock in the 1970s. Well, I mean, it's, it's unmissable, I'd say. I would say this, I mean, if you've any interest in, in that era, I know it will be a right riveting read. Yeah, yeah. And, he's very, uh, and Mike's a very stylish writer, so it'll be a good read too. Yeah, yeah and he's actually, the other day, was on Mark Allen and Dave Hepworth's Word in Your Ear mm-hmm. podcast, so check that out too. So those are the three offerings on the home page, mm-hmm. and now we turn our attention. Do we not, Mark? We do. Two. Well, the first thing is our audio interview, which is John Tobler interviewing John Prine, the American's kind of country folk singer-songwriter. Oh, joy, another country folk singer-songwriter. <laughs> Back in your box. <laughs> thrill. Yes. Back in your Can't box. You weren't supposed to come in that early with, 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 uh, with your heresies. <laughs> and it, actually, it, it's a delightful interview. I mean, I can't say... We'll, we'll talk about Prine later in more detail, but, but he's someone who sort of slightly passed me by, even though I liked a lot of music in the territory he was operating in. But we'll kick off straight away with a, with a clip because it's actually one of the first things he talks about. Where the unlikely moment when he got to write a song with Phil Spector. Now, we were talking about this yesterday. There's a, there's a book to be written about all the people who've had run-ins or dealings with Phil Spector. It's all held hostage yeah, at, 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 at Phil Spector's mansion. It's pretty close. The 45 was produced, which we, we will hear about now. <laughs> He didn't like Al being with me. Al was, found out I was going up there with Al Burner and Al said, can I come up too? I'd love to, you know, I'd like to meet Phil Spector. I said, sure. I said, he didn't like the idea when he found out Al was a manager. He didn't like the idea of a manager being in his house, you know. <laughs> and, uh, and he motioned to me to follow him in the kitchen. He went in the kitchen, he pulled out his, he had a 44 Magnum. Um, he had a three-piece suit. And he had a Christmas tree at the front door, right? And this is, uh, it was well after Valentine's Day. You know? <laughs> <laughs> and, like, and, uh, and his kids all come down, running down the stairs in uh, their pajamas. And in his 
way of telling Uncle Dad was, he said, who's the king of rock and roll? And they go, you are, Daddy, you are. <laughs> okay, this is Phil Spector's house. I go to the kitchen with him. He takes this 44 Magnum out, and he opens the door to the backyard and sticks it outside. He says, he says okay, so I'm going to throw a chair around the room. He says, you holler. He says, like, you're getting hurt. So he starts banging the chair against the refrigerator, and I go, ah! He goes, ah! Like this. He was doing all this for Al. It was scary, right? Uh, and he came out. We we walk out of the kitchen laughing together, right? Harvard and I, and Al's sitting there going, and Al knew what's was up. Was Al's going, he's going. He said, I think it was a forty Ford or a thirty nine Ford. He just talked like he totally ignored <laughs> what's going on there. You know? <laughs> he's a real case though. If you don't want my love. If you don't want my love, if you don't want my love... I mean, look, who's the king of rock and roll? You are, Daddy, you are. <laughs> just because it takes on a slightly macabre tinge when we know well, of course. what happened to Lana uh. Clarkson. But as you say, it's not the not the only example of someone, you know, not, not being able to leave Casa <laughs> Spector. Well, the thing is, they went to write a song together and nothing happened until yeah. he's leaving the door. He's actually almost halfway... Phil hated door. people leaving. Yeah, yeah, and then suddenly this sort of song emerged. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's just extraordinary. But yeah. So he talks about that. He talks about his favourite songwriters, about writing with Shel Silverstein. Very interestingly, he's a guy who got really disenchanted with the mainstream music business in quite a hurry. He had a rough experience at Atlantic, then rough experience at Asylum. He'd recorded his album Pink Cadillac, which was rough and readily put together with his own road band. And he took it to Asylum, and the guy at Asylum said, are you sure this is the record you wanted to give us? Mm. You know. And so he set up his own label in 1981. This is really pioneering stuff. It's still going to this day. It's actually had some... Oh, boy records. Oh, boy records. Some, oh, some, boy. Some, oh, some boy. degree of success. He also talks about, and we'll play a clip again right now, how in the mid-70s, the New York Times wrote this piece about the next Bob Dylan competition, and it's John Prine... Loudon Wainwright. Loudon Wainwright. Elliot Murphy. Elliot Murphy and Bruce Springsteen. Yeah. And Bruce Springsteen, many years later comes along to see a show and... and A Prine show. A a Prine show. And let's listen to this. This is great. There's a New York Times article in about 73, maybe, and it was like the the new Bob Dylan contest. It was uh, Springsteen, Loudon Wainwright, Keith Sykes, Elliot Murphy and myself. Yeah. And it was this big article in the Sunday New York Times about who's going to be the new Bob Dylan. You know? And, uh, you know, and uh, uh, so I, I, uh, the night he came down to see me, I did an introduction before Brother Bruce had it, told the audience about this whole new Bob Dylan contest. You know? <laughs> and, I, and I talked about what happened to each each one. I said, of course, Loud and Wayne, I did Loud and Wayne, right? And like uh, Keith Sykes lived in Memphis, and he was a record producer. But now he's an artist again. And it went on and on, you know. And I said, of course, I'm here. I'm stuck here with you. <laughs> I said, I said that this guy, I said this guy went on to do something completely different. <laughs> I thought about, I thought it was always like a thousand seater. The people's their heads like nailed against the wall. It was just like that. You know? They just they couldn't believe it. Like, you know? <laughs> it's really neat. Dreams were lightning 
thunder were desire This old house would have burnt down a long time ago She's very affectionate about the Springsteen body rate, you know. In, who who'd done a number of his songs. That's right. Most yeah. famously, Angel, Angel from Montgomery. That's right, rather beautifully. Yeah. Um, and he said whenever he was in a, town, a given town, he had nothing to do with it. Of an evening, he'd find out where Bonnie Rick was playing, and even if it meant kind of like getting a plane to go and see her, mm. go and see her. Mm. He also talks about, he, he recorded a lot in Memphis. Not the first location come to mind when you think about, about him. But he loved those musicians. He also had an album produced by Steve Cropper. He's very funny about recording in Sam Phillips' studio. Yes. You tell the story there. Yes, right. <laughs> so Pink Cadillac was being done at, I guess, the Phillips International Studio. Yeah. I'm not quite sure. And um, apparently Sam comes by on the way to the bank, he says, right? <laughs> and, uh, and, uh, and afterwards Sam tells him, you know, I, I thought your voice was so terrible that I should stick around and see if I could fix it. <laughs> <laughs> so, look, we know Jasper really detests this kind of music. Any, anything... <laughs> He's with, squirming uh, in his yeah, seat just, in agony. Anything with a hint of country. <laughs> in it yeah. uh, brings Jasper out in well, hives. Anything, anything. But we're here but to defend yes, we, we are. this kind of proto-Americana. We were, we were listening to the, some stuff in the office yesterday and, and well, you, Barney, said Steve Earle. You, you could really yeah. hear a lot of Prine and Steve Earle. And Prine is as much to do with that sort of Towns Van Zandt, Guy Clark, Steve yeah. Earle, Texas sort of aesthetic of songwriters, country yeah. slash folk songwriters as he's got to do with anything else but he's before them yeah he came out of the folk scene in yeah. Chicago I mean he it's weird because in the interview he really sounds southern yeah and, and, and he isn't southern well, he, he is, almost he, became no, adopted no he was born in the south he, he, is, he was born in Illinois well, he talks about him his his home place being the same county that the Everly Brothers came from. Okay. So I'm it, only going by it's something called Wikipedia. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, would, but, I wouldn't but, trust it. Yeah, Is that trust. from that newfangled internet? <laughs> thing? But but uh, he, he talked you know he talks about his great friendship with Steve Goodman, who's more of a yeah. blues player. Steve Goodman really a sort yeah. of finger picking blues player, but. He's charming in this interview. He's he, absolutely delightful. He, he, he really, really is. And I think he's an interesting guy. Yeah, you know, yeah. Even if... I'm, I don't think he's the greatest singer. No. I don't think he's the greatest, like, chordsmith, as it were. I don't think his music is... That's that, interesting. Is yeah. that interesting? I do think he's one of the great lyricists. Yes. The stories that he tells, the humour in his songs. It's quite funny, because John Tobler actually rather objects to this in the interview. <laughs> yes, he, he does, says, doesn't he? Do you have to keep making jokes in your songs? In, your sad, in the saddest in the songs, song. you'll drop a joke in. And what does... What he, he says something like... The, no song too sad, you can't get a joke in there somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> I rather like that. That's quite yeah, a nice yeah. And he, he is a very witty writer and a very poetic writer. I mean, yeah. his famous songs are Sam Stone is this, is a song about a Vietnam veteran who, who comes back to America and becomes a junkie. There's a great song called Donald Lee. That first album mm -hmm. was a bit of a singer-songwriter classic. And you mentioned it was actually recorded with the American studio musicians That's in right. Memphis, but produced by, of all people, Arif Marden. <laughs> <laughs> you know, he was on Atlantic, yeah. and, and you sort of think... I mean, there is a funny point in the interview where he says, um, you know, I think Tober says, well, why did you leave Atlantic for Asylum? He did three albums also on, on Asylum. And he says something like, well, it just seemed to me like Armand Ersigan would just wanted to spend all his time with the Stones and Led Zeppelin. <laughs> and I was only there because I was under contract, yeah, yeah, you know. Yeah. I mean, I really enjoyed yeah. listening to him. And, I, and I, you know, I am a fan. I can't say I'm, like, cognizant of, of his whole body of work, but I like the guy. He's had some, of course, some fairly heavy 
health issues over the years. He's had bouts with cancer, including, I think there was a kind of, he had problems again last year. But he's back on the road. He's touring Europe at this very moment. He won a Grammy Lifetime Achievement Award. Interestingly, one of his bouts with cancer is he actually caused his voice to to change noticeably. He got a much gravelier voice after one after one treatment that he had to have for well he for, couldn't even sing for about a year for a long okay. time and then, but then, then he had a much vocal deeper, therapy yeah you and, know. You know, and the fact that without anything resembling mainstream success i'd guess his first two or three albums were as big as they ever got by setting up his own label he's got independence in a way that very few artists yeah. do he's managed to sustain a career he can either go out if he can afford to he can go out with a small band or if he mm. doesn't can't afford to, he can go out just by himself yeah he does say he's fed up with touring this interview you know mm. it's just you know, traveling just gets too tedious but yeah. oh boy it's still a viable record label yeah. it's still going and that's you know that's first years uh, you know that, that's 40 years yeah. so that's 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 pretty pretty good going I, mean, for I think he's had a sort of steady kind of career without mm. any obviously like hits and stuff but but there have been big successful covers of his songs always good for the band and he did balance. win a Grammy for the album that had come out most recently when John Tober interviewed him this is 92 mm-hmm. was The Missing Years that won a Grammy and the title track is Prine's account of what Jesus did in the unrecorded years between his childhood and his ministry <laughs> I mean that 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 just sums up John that's, Prine. That's, it's just, just something just, just delightfully <laughs> playful about it. Mostly great. the sonics of country music that put me off. Because I mm. love blues and I love musical storytelling and all of that. But a lot of country folk, I find it's so sort of interminable and it just happens and I, I find it tedious. And I, and I don't... You're, you're, you're like my wife, who, who, who detests... In many respects, you're like my wife. Yeah, we won't, go, sure into, we won't go into the I'm other sure things they have it. in common. No, but she absolutely loathes country. And I think for some people, it's just it's just a door that won't I open. I agree. But what I do think is because probably when I was... How old are you now? 16, 17? Um, I didn't really like country music <laughs> either. Um, <laughs> actually, he's aged considerably since working at Rocks Country. He's, so, he's so, haggard. So he, he's actually 23, <laughs> That's but he's working with these two 31. But I, I mean, I think I look. This is going to sound like a, a banal observation. I don't know what you think, Mark, but I do think as you get older, I think country music speaks to you more. I think just the emotion and the depth. Partly because it. it's not written for kids. Yeah, it's essentially adult music or, or you know, young adult music, maybe people in their twenties and thirties. Yeah. But a lot of country songwriting is from directly from experience in a way that a lot of other songwriters... Hank Williams it. wasn't writing for Elvis Presley fans. No. I mean, I think that's the Though, point. In a way. But, I mean, but how, I mean, how do you explain then that I love blues? I mean, there's a, there's a similarity oh, there. Yeah, but that's of... also, you, you've got a general affinity like I have with black... Africa, with African-American music. So it's a very different tonality. It's all kinds of things like that. Yeah, um, but I mean, but but it does have that storytelling, that yeah, experience you, you, base, you, that... you yourself were saying that you didn't like the tonality of country. And in a way, the tonality of country music is about sort of telling stories. And blues isn't massive storytelling music. It can do, but it, that's not central to it. But you, it is experience based, and I think that I it, think has we, more, we, it has much more—it has much more depth and variety of tone. And I, I, I actually, you know what? I have to say, Jasper, you say it has more depth and variety of tone. You haven't heard enough country music, yeah, you know, you, uh, brutally. I mean, everything from George Jones to Patsy Cline to Hank Williams, 
There's a huge to range Van Zandt and, 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 and those, those sorts of writers. And, you know. and all sonically extraordinarily different from one another. They yeah. are not the same thing. I mean, okay. I think Mark, Mark and I would both, would both agree that essentially we, we like many more blues and R&B artists. But, but I think a singer like George Jones can move you as deeply as oh, which know, one of Aretha great, Franklin no, or Bobby Blue Bland. George frankly, Jones is one yeah. of the great soul singers, yeah. without a shadow of a doubt. You know? yeah. And then there's people like Willie Nelson, who's got almost more to do with the white jazz big speeder back tradition of the 20s and 30s as he has to do with Hank Williams or anyone mm. like that mm. you know mm. so and you've got Bell Wilson and his Texas Playboys who are basically the Count Basie orchestra with pedal steel and, and fiddles you and know. frankly you know I think Steve Earle can be an extremely yeah. moving singer so stick around really. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, we'll, we'll be sitting here doing the podcast in about 30 years yeah. and Jasper will will, will, we'll finally will say, got... he'll say I, I get it now I was listening to a good <laughs> for the roses. I mean, last the thing night. is, I'm, I'm not. I don't no. say that there isn't good stuff. I think that the problem is, it could be that, that you're right. I just haven't heard enough good mm. country. So much country sure. that I've heard really genuinely does sound very similar. Yeah. And that twangy voice and twangy guitar and. Well, yeah, you, you know, you're talking about the blues. A lot of people who don't like the blues say, well, that same old gravelly voice, that same old twangy guitar. Yeah, yeah it's not different kind of twang. Sure, you know? country has changed massively in the last it's horrible. 15, 20 years. I, I, I'd say kind of. Current I mean, when you consider that Taylor Swift, it was originally I mean, a I can't country pop up. Yeah. That kind of country. Yeah, well, pop that's, that that's not. But, but, what I, but I, I recognise that that's a different kind of music yeah. than what necessarily we're talking about. But sometimes it can be difficult to divorce the superficial sounds that are carried over still into country pop from the good stuff that has come before it. But and so, back when, you know, I, you know, when front, I first... Please start, feel, you know, feel free to play stuff. We'll, 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 we'll tie we'll, we'll 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 him to the chair and just play him <laughs> country music for the next two weeks. I don't think we're going to convince Jasper today. We'll just keep wearing wearing away at him. Yeah. But, well, we'll, we'll revisit this in a year's time. And <laughs> yeah, find, find every, become, on the same day every year. <laughs> he'll, become, he'll be George Jones's biggest fan. Mm. Maybe. Maybe. I mean, but I think I think that we're making slightly too stark an issue of this. It's not a question of, like, I loathe everything that is remotely in the ballpark of country. That's pretty much what he said, wasn't it? Bob? Yeah, when I say <laughs> that the audio this week is going to be John Prine, you groan well, but like, I mean... like an, an animal in pain. <laughs> no, but I mean, but he also plays some of John Prine's music, and sonically it just... I mean, I that's it. just it. Like, it, it's just... Whether or not the lyrics are good is boring as a sound to me. That's it, really. And I, and well, I think that. But I mean, as soon as you get more, <laughs> as soon as you get more into the into the realm of soulfulness, yeah. you get more into the realm of folk. There is stuff that I really love. So it's, I don't think it's really as sort of simple as as, as you're making out. Well, but there you go. We, we like to keep make things simple, don't we? In binary in this yes, podcast, absolutely. Let's talk about what some of the is... new pieces, Mark. Yeah, well, starting off with Starbeat, Mike Grant reporting on the Mersey scene. Mike Grant being an alter ego for dear Keith Oldham, a long old friend of Rock's Back Pages. This is from Rave in April 64. And he basically he writes this one entire column of just about the Mersey scene, which he didn't do often because he's very London-based, yeah. our Keith. And he's a, a blonde hairdresser. is said to be very much the apple of Ringo Starr's eye at the moment. She lives and works in Liverpool and is his constant companion whenever he returns home. A close friend who works with her told me Ringo brought her a lovely pair of handmade crocodile skin shoes back from Paris. And when he was in America, he spoke to her on the telephone for 45 minutes. 45? Um, in local clubs and coffee bars, where Ringo is so well known that he gets no world star treatment, there is a conspiracy of silence over her identity. No one will talk about her. 
She doesn't want to talk about their romance, said her friend. She does not want to be pestered by people. And Ringo would be very angry if she was misquoted. Well, I guess this is Maureen. First, yeah, an early, an early sighting of Maureen. Must be. She married Ringo And she could have had Paul That's why the lady is a champ Detroit Free Press, 1966, Lorraine Alterman, interviewing, it's a brief interview, the Supremes just got back from a tour of Japan and the Far East. And Mary Wilson says, the geisha girls were showing us how to dance geisha style, and we were showing them how to dance rock and roll, which is fabulous. And Florence Ballard in the same interview says, you don't buy potato chips in a bag like here. Instead, people snack on bags of dried fish and dried octopus. Dried octopus. <laughs> wow. A brief one is Charlie Watts, The Rolling Stones, and the pop thinking, Melody Maker 67, on Mick Jagger. I don't know if he's intelligent so much as bright. He's very bright. I know more intelligent people. Which I think is actually pretty, pretty astute. <laughs> same year, same paper. Paul McCartney is doing the blind date where a star is played record. And it's Jimi Hendrix experienced purple haze and Paul says must be Jimi Hendrix so Jimi freaks out and sounds all the better for it it's breaking out all over the place you know I thought it'd be one of those things that people might keep down but it's breaking through all over you can't stop it hooray this is a good record too I really don't know whether it's as commercial as Hey Joe or Stone Free I bet it is though probably will be Fingers Hendrix, an absolute ace on the guitar. This is yet another incredible record from the great Twinkle Teeth Hendrix. And, of course, it was Paul McCartney who got Hendrix onto the Monterey Pop Festival bill. You know, no one in America knew, knew about this, this, this American. It's a great route. So it's a sort of, like, blind date yeah, with, a, exactly. with a single. Exactly. Like, who is this? Yeah, right. yeah. Okay. And, and, and Paul just nails it. And a year later, same artist, and this is Anne Moses' For the Enemy sees them at the Anaheim Convention Centre in, in uh, Los Angeles, yeah, mm. California. And she says, Jimmy's show was disappointing since his wild dancing and writhing were noticeably absent. And he blew an amplifier and then he played four numbers in the second show. And in a way, you do, you do the jump from the enthusiasm sure. of Paul McCartney in the beginning of 67 to, to the beginning of 68. It's barely a year. It's, it's barely it's, a year. And in fact, it was exactly a year. And kind of everything starting to go wrong with Jimmy is already starting mm. to go yeah. wrong with Jimmy. And it sounds like she's sort of expecting him to be this entertainer. Absolutely. Sort of, Spot you know. on, Jasper. But one of the problems Jimmy had was that whilst he loved doing that, he didn't want to be just that. He also no. just wanted to stand up and play as well as he could. And as particularly the American fans were demanding this wild man act, you know. Mm. And it, 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 we've talked about it before, but it's the stuff sure. that wore him down. Yeah. Paul Simon interviewed again by Lorraine Altman. That's funny. I've got two the Lorraine great Lorraine Altman. Yes. Who, we should point out, may well be coming in. We hope to have her in on the podcast. One That'll of the very good. first pop writers in the 60s. Absolutely. female pop writers. And yeah. she's going to be in London in, I think, early April. Well, and, um, fingers crossed. We've got her penciled in. So, so good. Tune in for that. Interesting is Paul Simon actually says that he doesn't listen to lyrics. I mean, he writes lyrics, but when he's listening to music, he doesn't listen to lyrics. He says, of course, I write lyrics so they're important to me. I want to say something, but a lot, a lot of people don't listen to lyrics. And then about me and Julio in the schoolyard. Yeah. I can understand how people read that into it, that being, is it a gay song? But as a matter of fact, it's not about a homosexual encounter. I would include myself in the rock world amongst the heterosexuals. <laughs> uh, a good songwriter like Jim Webb or Paul Williams feels compelled to go out and be an artist, and they're so mediocre. And... 
You know, you like Jim Webb as an artist. I, I, I won't stand for any criticism well, of Jimmy Webb. Well, well especially well, from that. Well, from there, that there you go. Smug um, little man. He says everything the Beatles did was their own, but at the moment, I'm a believer is a good pop record, good for them. About the monkeys. That's that's you know he's right. Mm-hmm. I believe it's fantastic. Then I saw her face. Now I'm a believer. Nineteen seventy-five record mirror. Ian Dury being interviewed by David Hancock. Ian Dury at that point was still in Kilburn and the High Roads. What a fabulous <laughs> band name! Absolutely love it. <laughs> Who was sort of pub rock band, but they, yeah, they were. But with a twist. The weird thing about them is that they were a really weird bunch of people. And Ian Dury says we've also been regarded as a bit peculiar visually. That's not ever been conceptualised. It just happened. The fact our drummer wore crutches and that Charlie the bassist is rather small is just one of those things. Not to mention that, that Ian Dury was Crab- yes, but, so that's right. Well, yeah. that's in the context of him talking yeah. about him being a cripple. Exactly. Yeah. Then went on to write Spasticus Autisticus. Autisticus. Like yeah, one of his most famous songs. H two very brief thing. This a band called The Bangs who would. Adding an L and an E into their name became the Bangles and literally the mm. next year. It's Mark Levinson for Music Connection and Los Angeles magazine. And they're playing Owl's Bar. And at the end of it, he says, there's no question that all the elements are here to make the group one of the biggest draws around. 1983 is theirs for the taking. Well, I actually saw the band. Did you? As well. in, really? in that year, probably almost exactly around then, not not that gig at Al's Bar, but they were doing some kind of showcase gig for IRS. Right. Which I think they were signed to at that uh-huh. point. And they were part of that Paisley Underground scene in mm-hmm. LA where all these groups, you know, were sort of referencing the 60s. Sure. And the Bangs was a very 60s mm-hmm. name. Yeah, they were, they were, they were pretty good, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. One of our Friends, David Sigerson, of course, then produced them. Did he? Uh, I did, he produced I didn't know Eternal that. Flame, which was their huge number one. Wow. And yeah, Susanna Hoff's big. Did she do a record with Prince? I think Prince was very enamoured of her. But well, anyway, I mean, it was an interesting time to, yeah. to be in LA because sure. of all those bands like the Dream Syndicate, yeah. the Rain Parade. The Bangs were, were sort of like the girl group yeah, among, yeah. among that. Well, so yeah, it's good, interesting to Good for Mark Loveton spotting. Yeah. You know, that, that's, that's interesting. This is just funny. Jay Cordash for Cream, 1983, interviewing Molly Hatchett's Dave Lubeck. I mean, this man is just a prick of the first fucking order. So he says things like, Black Sabbath, to me, they suck a big one. I think they're sacrilegious. This is only my opinion, but there's no reason when the good Lord gives you the luxury of success to go in front of these impressionable people and give the sign of the beast. Molly Hatch, what a great name. What a great name. I mean, they were were sort of... They were fundamentalist Southern rockers. Yes, they were. They? They I mean, they were from the South. They were, yeah. And, you know, I mean, he's deceased now, but one can only assume that he would be a fully paid-up member of the Church of Donald Trump. Yeah, I, 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 I think that's a fair bet. He um, also says, boy, George can sing. He's got a fine voice. He doesn't have to play a fucking faggot. There you oh, go. No. And there, there you it go. is. There it is. <laughs> 1983. Yeah. 1985, The Guardian, Adam Sweeting interviewing R.E.M.'s Mike Mills. Well, he actually interviewed most of the band, but this is Mike Mills talking. And he's talking about a journalist who had written... He wrote that the Delph Wagos are a true Southern band and R.E.M. is not because the Delph Wagos song is all about getting their paychecks on Friday, blowing them on Friday night, riding around in pickup trucks and drinking beer, and that is the essence of the true South, whereas R.E.M. might as well be from Chicago. 
And it's 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 a good point because you know in some ways early REM as much about southern gothic as anything else. As there was an, there was always a touch of southern. They were very atypical southern band. If but, you're going to write REM into the story of southern rock, they they are a real tangent. No, we've from, yet to tag them as southern rock yeah. on rock pages. But they are also of the South. They it, are of the it's South. It's a different South. I mean, kind of Athens, which is, of course, is a, is a college, college town, town yeah. and it was very, very, like, indie-oriented. It was certainly a million miles away from the Molly Hatchet. <laughs> well, I thought um, that was quite nice. But it's a great juxtaposition. <laughs> but, you know, they did feel of the South and identify the South. In many with, ways. Yeah. You know, and those early album covers, they got this, this ex- extraordinarily eccentric guy to do, I mean, it's the cover of, what was it most famously, like Reckoning. He was called the Reverend something, and, and, <laughs> and, and, his, and his paintings were full of sort of mm-hmm. strange Southern iconography. Right. And so yeah. they, they didn't entirely disavow yeah. the South. No, no, I mean, he's, Michael was resentful that one band is treated as a sort of Southern band just because of the kind of noise yeah. they make, whilst, you know, well, actually, you know, we are we are just a different part of the yeah, South. Yeah, different iteration um, of the South. 89, Enemy, Barbara Ellen, the splendid Barbara Ellen, interviewing Debbie Harry. It was great. Or Deborah Harry. Deborah at this point, yeah, Mark. This point. Let's get it right. And she says, They said I was cheap, that I was exploiting my sexuality. It was quite a reverse of Madonna. I was ten years too soon. And, you know, I don't quite understand that quote that I saw it. No, well, what, I, I what is she actually what, what saying, is she saying there, Madonna that, could get that away? She wasn't exploiting no, no, her sexuality. No, no, or... no, no. She's saying that Madonna could do it and right. not be accused of it. Yeah. Right. Yeah. That's the, my the, the treatment was reversed. Yeah, 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 yeah. And then she talks about being a Playboy bunny in the Playboy club. Sure. She says the club itself had surprisingly high standards. It wasn't at all blatant. The Playboy bunny waitresses never made guys sit down and buy them drinks. Yeah, she's basically saying, you know, it was a good job. And lastly, the terrific recent addition to our writer's stable, Stephen Daly, writing for The Face in December 1997. And it's when Texas, Charlene Spateri and her fellow Texans went to work with the Wu-Tang Clan, which is one of the least likely kind of combinations I've come I, from. I, I had forgotten all about well, it when I, you I'm, mentioned I'm this. not sure much happened with it. And <laughs> anyway, so, so he says, RZA has decided to dispense with the original master tapes shipped over from Britain. He wants a completely new version, recorded rough and ready without the standard safety net of a timecode. This convention-trashing, wild-style approach to recording elicits some consternation from the studio's engineer, a central casting white guy who warns RZA... You won't be able to sync this, you know. Rizzo waves him away and turns to Johnny McElhern. Johnny McElhern being the guitar player with his text. This riff is in E, McElhern tells Rizzo. Maybe we should try it in the original key, D. What are you saying? I don't understand no keys, says Rizzo. <laughs> <laughs> and it's, 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 a bit, it's a wonderfully descriptive bit of writing. It's, a, you know, when you sort of see films of hip-hop artists in the studio and they basically turn the studio into a party. This seems, whether it's... Dr. Dre or whoever, you know, everyone comes from their friends, half people are writing lyrics, you know, writing words, blunts are being passed around, and basically this is what happens. Rizzo walks off with the studio sampler, three and a half grand's worth of sampler, at the end of the session, just to say fuck off to this engineer. And they get banned from the studio to find another studio the next day. That's great. But Stephen Dale is such a good reporter. Mm. Yes, he's is. just, you know, good interviewer, good all that stuff, but he's a reporter, and I, I love good reporting. Yes. You know, and he's it. Great, great. What about you guys? Well, OK, just very, very briefly, I'm slotting this in just in case 
next week's guest doesn't actually appear. Um, <laughs> I'll say no more than that. We're slightly on tenterhooks. We're hoping to have quite a big name for next week's episode. But this is a wonderful piece that Luke Turner, who used yes. to work with us here. Um, Lovely Luke. An interview that Luke did with Neil Tennant and Chris Lowe, the Pet Shop Boys, for Stool Pigeon in... May 2009. And it's, it's just a delight. I mean, they are such a joy to read in conversation. So smart. Yeah, so, yeah. so witty. Neil talks about the 80s when everyone was hanging out at the Groucho. And he mentions the star bar at the Camden Palace. And he says, I was there once and George Michael came up and said, do you know who Jerry Wexler is? And Tanner goes, yeah, he produced Dusty in Memphis. He's amazing. And George goes, well, I've got this song, Careless Whisper. Do you think I should do it with him? I said, of course. Anyway, he goes and records it, and he comes back and says, it didn't work out, so I produced it myself. I thought, oh, God. But, of course, George's version is better than Wexler's version. So, anyway, that was the early 80s, he says. Fantastic. Um, And then there's another very funny Neil quote where Luke asks about... He'd been some sort of panel discussion about punk and post-punk, and Tom Morley of Scritty was on the Viv Albertine of the Slits, was Mm -hmm. on the Colin Newman from Wire... Neil, this is typical Neil sort of, sort of sociography, really. He says, well, what you want to do is ask yourself where they're from. They're Notting Hill Gate. You're talking West London. Now, West London has a pop culture, which, as someone from Newcastle, I've always regarded with the deepest suspicion. (laughs) Whereas your man from Wire was from Watford, which is practically the north of England. (laughs) Coming from Watford is a very different thing from hanging out on the Portobello Road. It's not wrong. He's not wrong. I don't know why you're looking at me, but when you're saying that. <laughs> yes, Mr. Portobello. Uh, and then just the other quick piece is a great interview with the amazing oh. guitar player Mark Rebo. James Med, who was one of our early podcast guests, interviewed Mark for The Word in 2011. And he talks to him, of course, about working and playing with Tom Waits and other stuff. And it's just fascinating, really. He asked him particularly about the track Jockey Full of Bourbon and how he kind of came up with the guitar sound for that. And Rebo's just wonderfully sort of poetic about it. He says what that actually is, it doesn't work based on blues licks like most rock solos. It works based on an older kind of solo that's based on chord arpeggiation. So it has something to do with Latin music, Cuban music and Django Reinhardt. And he says that Waits works dramatically. He's a character in the song, and then it's my job to be someone who makes sense to have in the same room. He's a jockey, he's full of bourbon, and that places him in some kind of bar. But what kind of bar? (laughs) It seemed to be a bar with a wide selection of lowlife. It could be in Marseille, or it could be in Havana. (laughs) (laughs) That's great. It's great, isn't it? Mark Rebo's a wonderful guitar player. I mean, just if 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 any of you want to listen to one album of his own, Listen to the Rootless Cosmopolitan, right. which is just fantastic. It's yeah. such a great record. You know, again, yeah. going to go Spotify, there's yards of Mark Rebo yeah. on Spotify. Anything from jagged, abstract, out there stuff to yeah. almost kind of like rhythm and blues. There's one album where they just do funk tunes, classic funk tunes, him's band. He's just he's amazing. extraordinary. I mean, because whenever he solos on a, on a weight oh, track, it's, it's never about showing off. Yeah. It really is. But sometimes it's just incredible. There's a solo on one weight track, I can't remember which, where it's just a single. Note, yeah, yeah, yeah. Just like going on for like several yeah. bars. He's absolutely—he's he's my top five guitar yeah, players yeah, without, yeah. without a shadow of a doubt. In fact, he's playing on the wire thing. You know, you know his solo on yeah, "Way yes. Down in the Hole." Yeah, yeah. I think is one of the oh. great 
guitar solo, you know, it's just, but it's so spare and yeah, simple. Absolutely. No, you're absolutely right. He strips. I mean, you don't hear technique with. It's not about you do not hear chops. Flash your virtuoso. He's got the chops. You'd never hear them. It's It's about character and flavour. All of that. Jasper, young man, what have you got for us this week? What have I got? I've got a couple of pieces. Couple of pieces. Mm, yeah, what a surprise. <laughs> First of which is an interview with Foles' Yanis Philippakis by one of our newest writers, Pip Williams. And interestingly, Yanis has a bit of a reputation for being a bit of a tough interview. Mm-hmm. He's had some sort of, not altercations, but he's a bit... You prickly know, can be a bit prickly. prickly. And, and, but Pip said that the experience of interviewing him was actually very pleasant. And I think they're very young at the time of doing the interview, so... Yanis was, I think, a bit more, almost a bit surprised and was a lot kinder and, and quite fun to just to, to talk to. And it's an interesting interview. It's sort of, it's, he's always quite freewheeling in interviews. So Pip asks, the video for what went down is really intense and visceral. What were the ideas behind it? Yanis goes, you know when you watch an Attenborough or a wildlife programme, you've got an animal like a lion. It's tensed and it's watching its prey and the moment it charges in to chase its prey, the song feels like that moment. Pip asks in response to that, so if the album was an animal, it would be a predator. Yanis, I think the album as a whole is like something that's more multicoloured and can shapeshift or change. So it'd be like an octopus or or like a cuttlefish. Comparing your album to a cuttlefish. I love that. Second reference to an octopus in this podcast. Gosh, dried octopus from oh, Supreme. You're right. Of course, Gosh. yes. God, Sea Life, the episode. <laughs> the next piece I've got is Leanne Le Havas live at the Royal Albert Hall seen by Stephen Dalton writing for The Times. Tell us about it, because I know you're a big fan yeah, of Yeah, I love Leanne Le Havis. I think she's she's sort of singer-songwriter. She's from South London. She's just charming. She's mm. lovely, and, and I've seen What's her... What's her style of music, in a way? I mean, what, when you say singer-songwriter... Sort of jazzy, yeah. R&B-ish... It's not country. Not country, no. <laughs> Surprising, <laughs> really. <laughs> I saw her at Latitude Festival a few years ago, and it was sort of the first... It was just she was afternoon slot at a festival, yeah. and it was kind of the first time I'd seen her or heard her music, and I just fell in love on the spot, basically. Yeah. She's just a delight to watch. She's funny and quite personal on stage, even at a, on a big festival stage. And Stephen Dalton... Thinks I think he, he recognises that charm, but he also says her low-voltage live persona could benefit from a dash of Amy's badass charisma or Beyoncé's imperial swagger. She has stellar talent but lacks star quality. And I don't really think that's quite the right way to approach her music. She's got a fantastic Tiny Desk concert, one of the NPR series, yep. which is just brilliant. And I think to expect that kind of badassery or swagger is, is slightly wrong. It's, I think he... What he maybe is he's, he's sort of saying that that's part of the job, you know, to, and to some it shouldn't be have to be the part of the job for everyone. No, so not no, everyone no, can be Beyonce no, or no, Amy no, Winehouse. No, I agree. But let's say you know, if you've been reviewing live acts for years, you know, you, you remember the ones with re- big charisma. Yeah, but actually, but I mean, I remember her, and she she was very charismatic, mm-hmm. but not in a she she made it like a small room. Sure, she made the big stage feel well, like a small great, room, and yeah, I think that's great I think that was you know she was yeah. really talking to individuals in sure. the audience rather than trying to be this larger sure. life persona. And well, I saw her again. I saw her you? again at Afropunk, and, and she was just she was great. She yeah. was she was lovely. She just mm-hmm. comes across as a really lovely individual. Because I know what I got, I 
know where we're going. You don't need to show it. I already know it all. It's what you don't do. It's what you don't say. It's what you don't do. I know you love me. I don't need proof. And she's written some really interesting songs with it's not just smooth. There's some there's some edge to her music as well, and you know it comes across really well. But, so, you know, so she's, I think... no, she's no Patsy Cline. <laughs> Horse dead, beaten. <laughs> Horse? You took bad my horse, boy. <laughs> <laughs> Lastly, I went to see Caravan Palace a couple of weeks ago at the Brixton O2, and so I thought I'd just mention that I added my own piece to the to the archive. Yes, it's a it's a writer called Jasper Mirrors and Bowie. But I was I I sort of felt compelled to write about the gig because I, I sort of went last minute was given a ticket by a friend and was kind of perplexed by the whole thing because they're a sort of electro-swing group. Mm-hmm. Now, if you ask me, electro-swing is sort of an inherently dubious proposition. What is it, Just? It's like <laughs> club, club music, but with sort of the musical idioms of the big band and of swing okay. music. And, and Is there a whole movement here? Yeah, there, mm. there's, it, it really, I think, had its time in the sun or, or under mm. the lights, uh, maybe... <laughs> Going you know, under lights. <laughs> I've um, got hydroponic music. Hydroponic swing. <laughs> maybe five, five... Six years ago, oh, but okay, God, Christ, thanks. we're only just coming. But it's still, it's still, it's still going, sort of. It's, it's. Does it have a swing groove, or is it a banging four on the floor? It's pretty banging, but then with like you know horns and and stuff. So how old are Caravan Palace? Oh, I don't know. They've probably been going for about ten years. I think. I don't. Good know. I don't God. know. I'm not. Almost I'm honestly as old as not me. sure. But what was weird? What was, what was weird about the whole thing was that on the one hand, it was kind of weird and impersonal and, and a-human because of this contradiction at the heart of Electro Swing. On the other hand, it was just a lot of fun. Like, they were entertaining, they were, it was a good laugh. Like, right. So I kind of came away going, like, did I enjoy that? And I think the answer is, yes, I did, but it was a bit weird at the same time. It's sort of, like, strange, where it was more purely entertaining than it was anything else. They had a dance on stage, their, stage, their stagecraft was Not fun. Not Stacia. <laughs> That's going in next week, I believe. Yeah, I'm going to warn you, next week we've got an interview with Stace from Hawkwind, which I can... You know, it's yeah. all too brief. Brief has been the opposite Also, ne- ne- also <laughs> next week, we are hoping, as alluded to earlier, to be joined by a certain pet shop chap, but he's he's quite busy at the moment. So I was going to say a former Smash so Hits what, what, writer. What, what, yeah. what We're covering saying, our arse. What is saying, it probably won't happen. It probably won't happen, yeah. <laughs> so naturally pessimistic. Yeah. It may just be the three of us or or some stand-in, but we are hoping that Neil Tennant will come in and talk to us about the, his smash hits years, which could be very entertaining. It could if be, not, it, you'd just be lumped with us three. Really kind of talking about country music. We're going to go with a, another John Prine clip where he's talking about his brother teaching him to play guitar, and it's very sweet. It's worth pointing out that he had a long-term... His brother and he have been, have been continued to be very close... His brother played with his band. His brother's also a physicist. I like the idea of a songwriter and a family with one son as a songwriter and the other son Blows as a physicist. Blows my mind, um, Bonnie and I are going to mosey on down to the Grand Ole Opry. Jasper's going to go back to the office and do some work, and we'll see you next week. <laughs> Jasper's going back to Planet Electro Swing. <laughs> and we're going down to, yeah, the Opry. Yeah, yeah. Whoever's cyber, here next cyberpunk week. Cyberpunk Fairground House of Horrors. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, someone will be here next week. To do this podcast. Not necessarily me. (laughs) (laughs) But thanks for joining us as ever. And see you next week. Next time. See you next week. Bye. Bye. Bye.
was he part of your becoming a musician? Because he he taught me how to play guitar. Right. I heard him play. He played the freight train, Elizabeth Cotton's freight train, for my father once in the kitchen, and I just was in total awe because it was my brother. <laughs> and I thought it was beautiful. He's playing this beautiful music, and I, it was just so odd to me. I was I was looking like a I was looking at a Martian or something. I said, my brother is actually playing that thing. I've seen people <laughs> play guitars, but not my brother. <laughs> you know? And I asked him if he'd show me how. And I had a real problem as a teenager. Getting, I had a real short attention span. I was always off in another world. And it took something like that. My brother had my attention. And he said, if you pay attention, he said, I'll, I'll show you how. And he showed me how, and I just practiced sound like nothing for six months and then one day I took the guitar out of the case and it was like as if by magic all of a sudden you know <laughs> my hands were rolling and pressing. Freight train, freight train wrong so fast Freight train, freight train wrong so fast Please don't tell what train I'm on They won't know what route I'm gone That was John Prine in conversation with John Tobler in 1992, concluding this week's Rock's Back Pages podcast. The hosts were Barney Hoskins and Mark Pringle, and it was co-hosted and produced by Jasper Muris and Bowie. The Rock's Back Pages podcast is part of the Pantheon Podcast Network. For a list of articles discussed and full show notes, please visit rocksbackpages.com forward slash podcast. You can find thousands of articles, as well as hundreds of full-length audio interviews, at rocksbackpages.com. This is Brad Page from the I'm in Love With That Song podcast, inviting you to join me as we explore a different song each episode, discovering what makes these songs great. The performances, arrangements, and the production tricks and techniques are all part of creating those magic moments that turn a good song into a great one. On this podcast, we take a deep dive into each song, listening to all those nuances that came together to make it a great song. Our journey takes us across the musical map, from the Beatles and the Stones to Aretha Franklin and Tom Petty, Kiss, The Cars, Todd Rundgren and Roxy Music, from Badfinger to Al Green, Stevie Wonder to David Bowie, from Aerosmith to the zombies. We listen to it all on the I'm in love with that song podcast. You may be unfamiliar with some of these songs and some of them you've probably heard a hundred times, but I bet if we listen closely, we can discover something new. So join me on the I'm in love with that song podcast and let's listen together because I think you're going to love these songs too. For the ones finding new ways to ensure the job always gets done. For the ones wearing many hats. For the ones who are hands-on, even from far away. And the ones keeping business moving forward. We are Granger, Offering professional-grade industrial supplies. 
plus real-time product availability and access to experts ready to answer your toughest questions. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more fantasy points. 